Just the other day, I received a text from one of our great family medicine attendings in our group, and she was concerned about refilling the patient's lamictal because she was in early pregnancy. When asked if that was acceptable to do, I quickly answered, absolutely. We've come a long way in understanding bipolar disorder and a long way since lithium was first described for its use. While lithium was used in psychiatry back in the mid-19th century, the widespread discovery of lithium is usually credited to Australian psychiatrist John Cade, who introduced it for mania back in 1949. The first randomized trial was actually published in 1954, where it showed efficacy for this mental health condition. The drug was not U.S. FDA approved, however, until 21 years later in 1970. But thankfully, now, safer options of medical therapy are available for reproductive age women. In this episode, we're going to summarize the data on medical therapy for bipolar disorder which medications are actually preferred, and are serum drug levels recommended, and what drastic move did the UK perform to reduce fetal exposure to some common medications that are used for bipolar disorder in reproductive-aged women. We'll explain it all in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we start with the data, just a quick editorial and soapbox moment. I really feel for these patients. I I know they can be difficult to deal with. I know they have a high rate of no-shows. I get that. And sometimes uh, they're a little bit off. I get that. But let me tell you something. Um, As a little transparency, uh, I was deeply, deeply touched and affected by a personal family member who suffered for years with bipolar disorder and could never get it right. Uh, I mean, that was my whole childhood was watching my mom struggle with this damn disease. Um, and she just never, ne- never found that happy balance uh, to it. Uh, it. It's horrible. So yes, it's frustrating. I get that. But when I hear somebody say, oh, gosh, she's, you know, here, you know, she's nuts or whatever, man, I, I get that. I, I know I get those terms. It's just, you know, when you know somebody with it, it's just, it's really sad uh, and, and, and it's concerning. And I mean, I'm, I, I worry about that for um, not just for my own health. I, I think I'm okay, although people would question that. Um, I, I worry that, about that for my children. I mean, I mean, the genetics on this thing is very confusing. It, it's very, very multifactorial. And there's a lot of environmental influences, including past traumas and even head trauma uh, that can trigger that. So I, I know it's not a direct, here's this one gene, this is passed down. But these are things that, that I consider. This is part of my reality every single day. Um, so anyway, just a quick soapbox. These patients, yes, they're a little off. I get that. But just have that reservation whenever there's that schizophrenic patient, that bipolar patient. Just just watch what we say to each other. Um, because what if it was you, your sister, your mom, your wife? 
uh, or you yourself? How would you want to be treated? All right, back to the episode. Bipolar disorder is characterized by chronic remitting and relapsing episodes of depression, hypomania, and mania. The lifetime prevalence is 4.4%, and that includes the three main subtypes that we'll talk about in just a minute. Men and women have a similar incidence of BD, or bipolar disorder, but women are much more likely to have depressive episodes, precipitous change between depression and hypomania or mania, that's called rapid cycling, and episodes of both depression and manic symptoms together, called a mixed state. With an average age of onset of 18 years, women are affected throughout their reproductive age, and pregnancy is a vulnerable time for episode recurrence. The mainstay of treatment for BD is pharmacotherapy, and the goal is prevention of symptoms of bipolar disorder during pregnancy and the acute postpartum interval. Look, podcast family, we've got to get this diagnosis correct. And ideally, that happens before conception so it can be managed. It's vital that this thing is accurately diagnosed because pregnancy can throw people for a loop with this condition. Compared with women with major depressive disorder, otherwise known as just unipolar disease, those with bipolar disease are at greater risk for mood worsening immediately postpartum and are 50% more likely than those just with major depression to have postpartum depression. Women with BD are also seven times more likely to be hospitalized for a first-time mood episode early postpartum. Mental illness in the perinatal period increases the risk for suicide, which of course is a leading cause of maternal death that's made nationwide news just last year. With a 25 to 50% increased risk for psychosis, that's a 100-fold increase over the rate in the general population, women with BD are particularly vulnerable to severe postpartum mood worsening. So just because they get through pregnancy does not mean they're out of the woods. I gotta say that number again. 25 to 50% have an increased risk for psychosis postpartum. This is why optimizing pregnancy and postpartum outcomes for women with this condition requires early identification, symptom monitoring, and effective pharmacological treatment. Now let's get into the three main types of bipolar disorder. Bipolar 1 is diagnosed when a person experiences a manic episode. During a manic episode, people with bipolar 1 disorder experience an extreme increase in energy and may feel on top of the world or uncomfortably irritable in mood. Some people with bipolar 1 also experience depressive or hypomanic episodes, and most people with bipolar 1 disorder also have periods of neutral mood. So in general, just remember, bipolar 1 is the up condition. A diagnosis of bipolar 2, on the other hand, is just the opposite. That's usually marked by at least one major depressive episode and at least one hypomanic episode. People return to their usual functioning between episodes. People with bipolar 2 disorder often first seek treatment as a result of their depressive episodes. That's why it's important that we get this distinction correct. Is it unipolar depression or does it have aspects of bipolar disorder? It's critical to identify who is just unipolar depression or regular major depressive episodes versus those who have both types of conditions. In other words, bipolar. Because if you treat somebody with 
undiagnosed bipolar depression with an antidepressant, it may actually unmask the mania. So you, you got to get this condition correct. And also remember that those women with BD are much more likely to have a postpartum episode than those who have unipolar depression. So we've got to get this right. As a helpful little tidbit, also remember that people with bipolar 2 often have some other comorbid psychological condition like anxiety disorder. Then the third category is cyclothymic disorder. This is a milder form of bipolar disorder having a lot of mood swings with hypomania and mild depressive episodes that occur frequently, but they're much less severe ups and downs than those with classic bipolar 1 or bipolar 2. So we have bipolar 1, which is the up, bipolar 2, which is typically the down, and then cyclothymic disorder, which is kind of in the middle. Okay, now let's cover the medical options for bipolar. If a patient is stable on a low-risk medication, and I'll discuss that in just a minute, then keep them on it. Abrupt discontinuation of psychotropic medications is associated with an increased risk for illness recurrence. Women with BD who discontinued their medication before or during pregnancy have a 71% risk of recurrence with new episodes occurring most frequently in the third trimester. Man, 71% recurrence, that's a lot. That was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry back in 2007. And remember that medications are just one aspect of care. It's also vital to assess social factors, life stressors, and social determinants of health. Also remember to offer patients appropriate counseling, and if they accept, that's an extra benefit. And remember, because depressive episodes are the most common mood recurrence during the perinatal period, be frequent with your assessments of the EPDS or a PHQ-9 and do that at least once a trimester. Now let's talk about lithium. Interestingly, lithium's early medical use was in the treatment of gout. That was documented by Alfred Barring Garrod. Yep, man, it's weird how people come up with stuff. But Garrett discovered uric acid in the blood of his patients with gout back in 1847, and he investigated lithium as an anti-gout agent, and he subsequently published that result in The Nature and Treatment of Gout and Rheumatic Gout in 1859. By the way, that was kind of a guess, like, hey, let's try lithium. How wild is that? <laughs> okay. Fetal exposure to lithium has been associated with an increased risk of cardiac abnormalities. And of course, the synquinone, the thing that we always remember without doubt that it's associated with, is Epstein's anomaly. The risk for Epstein's anomaly with first trimester exposure is 1 to 2 in 1,000. That's 0.1% to 0.2%. And you're like, wow, 0.1%? Really? I mean, is that a big deal? Yeah, it is, because that's a huge rise above the general population. We do need to be aware that lithium is a significant teratogen in the first trimester of pregnancy. If a patient has been taking lithium during the first trimester, we need to get a fetal echo between 18 and 24 weeks to assess for this condition. This is a good place for us to take just a little detour to get into the controversy of lithium use and Epstein's anomaly. How many of you learned that? I mean, we all did, right? And it's still a good thing to keep in mind just to be conservative and get that fetal echo. But not everybody agrees that lithium actually does that. What? Yes, it's a thing. Back in 2007, out of the journal Circulation, which comes out of the American Heart Association, this publication kind of shook things up saying, man, y'all are blaming lithium for this and it's not lithium. Wow. 
That article was Non-Inherited Risk Factors and Congenital Cardiovascular Defects, Current Knowledge. The lead author was Kathy Jenkins, and again, that was from May 2007. Here's what the article said. Quote, no association was seen in a case control study of over 10,000 children with congenital anomalies, but the number of exposures in the case and control group was small. More recent retrospective, prospective, and meta-analysis studies suggest that lithium appears not to be a cardiac teratogen, end quote. So we'll just have to agree to disagree. But one of the things that can explain this discrepancy is perhaps the dose of the medication. Published data do show that this risk of Epstein's anomaly is dose-related. So if the fetus was exposed to a daily dose of 600 milligrams or less, there was virtually no increase in the risk of cardiovascular defects. Y'all, this is a big clinical pearl. For a dose of 600 to 900 milligrams, the risk was elevated and the risk ratio was 1.6. And then once the dose became higher at 900 milligrams or above, there was a tripling in the risk of cardiovascular defects. This was published by Paterno et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017. I was just told by someone on my team that I threw out a y'all in the middle of that last part. Uh, you know, when we do a podcast, we're supposed to be kind of be accent neutral, right? So we apply to everybody. And that never works because I have a Texas accent anyway, and I'm Hispanic. So try to do that without some kind of accent. It is what it is. But I accidentally threw out a y'all. Uh, I'm not redoing that. That's staying in there. Y'all can edit that out later. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Epstein's anomaly is a condition where the tricuspid valve is displaced into the right ventricle, and it can be completely asymptomatic, or it can be fatal. I mean, people walk around every day who don't even know that they have the condition, and others are completely symptomatic. So it's very variable from one case to the next. Some have advocated giving high-dose folic acid supplementation at 5 milligrams to try to reduce the risk and severity of these congenital heart defects by suppressing the lithium-induced potentiation of signaling pathways that can inhibit important genes that are involved with cardiogenesis, but this is not universally adopted. No other congenital malformations have been associated with lithium exposure. And thankfully, developmental outcomes of children exposed to lithium in utero appear to be normal. For those who maintain lithium use in pregnancy, remember that lithium levels do decrease as gestation progresses, and that's just due to the natural physiological changes of pregnancy. By the third trimester, they're about 34% lower than pre-pregnancy levels, so you're going to have to increase the dose as the pregnancy advances. It's important to check a lithium level about once a month throughout gestation, and once the patient delivers, remember to drop the dose back down to prevent toxic levels. Okay, next, let's cover anti-epileptic medications in pregnancy for bipolar disorder. As for anti-epileptic medications, two come to mind for bipolar disease, valparate, which is Depakote, and carbamazepine, which is Tegretol. These have been associated with substantial risk for neural tube defects. The risk for neural tube defects, unfortunately, happens very early on, even before women can realize that they're pregnant. The first six weeks of pregnancy, the first 42 days, is when the neural tube forms, so women may not even know that they're pregnant by the time this is happening. 
Other risks for these antiepileptic medications include cranial defects and, oddly enough, even polydactyly. As an additional cautionary note, published data has shown that prenatal exposure to Depakote has been associated with impaired school performance in both primary and lower secondary schooling compared with children unexposed to antiepileptic drugs and children exposed to Lamictal. This was published in JAMA Neurology in 2018. Here's an important note about valparate and carbamazepine. Try to not prescribe these medications to patients who can't be trusted to use contraception reliably. Because of these concerns, especially about valparate, other countries like France and the UK have taken steps to avoid their use in reproductive age women, similar to what we have here for Accutane. Yep, there's a big restriction on the prescription of these medications unless patients go through an education program, have an effective form of contraception, and enter into a registry. In the United Kingdom, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, or the MHR, which is like our FDA, prohibited valproic acid for women of childbearing age unless they were on a pregnancy prevention program. This dates back to 2018. I think this is a very reasonable move, and we should have something like that here in the U.S. I mean, we do it for Accutane. So because of these neural tube defects with carbamazepine and valproate, it's an important thing to discuss contraception in women of reproductive age if they're on this medicine. I mean, we want them to have great medication for their mood stabilization, but if they're having sex and there's a risk of pregnancy, that has to be addressed if these medications are going to be used. All right, now let's get into the preferred medication for bipolar disorder and pregnancy, and that's Lamictal. Here's the clinical pearl right off the bat. Lamictal or Lamotrigine does not appear to increase the risk of birth defects, and it appears effective against relapses to manic and depressive episodes in pregnancy. Epilepsy registries have reported the rate of major congenital malformations to be between 2 and 2.9% with use of this medication, which is not any different than the general population's rate of around 3% up to 5% in some studies of major congenital malformations. So remember, given this favorable reproductive profile of this medication, Lamictal or Lamotrigine is the preferred option among patients who are pregnant. Here's another clinical pearl. Lamitrogene clearance does increase a lot in pregnant women. We know that estrogen increases the breakdown of lamictal, and by the time women reach their third trimester, just like with lithium, clearance of this medication can increase. But unlike with lithium, where serum levels dropped around 34%, drops of this medication are much more significant. Clearance of lamitrogene can increase up to 250% by the third trimester. So we'll need to increase the dose significantly during pregnancy. And then once again, just remember to reduce the dose after delivery. Pregnancy complications like preterm birth, miscarriage, or stillbirth have not been associated with in utero lamictal exposure. And here's an odd little tidbit. Listen to this. Studies have suggested that IQ scores are average or potentially above average in children with in-utero exposure to lamictal, and there's no significant adverse effects. This was published by Rittman et al. in Reproductive Toxicology in 2013. IQ scores average or slightly above average. Wow, uh, can't figure that out, but okay, whatever. 
Now let's briefly take a look at second-generation antipsychotic use in pregnancy. Second-generation antipsychotic medications include things like Latuda, Zyprexa, or Seroquel. A systematic review and meta-analysis from 2015 evaluated congenital anomalies with these medications. This study found twice the rate of major congenital defects among any psychotic-exposed infant versus controls. However, hold on a minute, here's a clinical pearl. There was no specific pattern of malformations and no specific drug was linked with any one birth defect. This means that the underlying illness or some other unidentified cofactor could explain the excess risk of birth defects, and it's not the medication. We worry, as always, that some known birth defect is going to show up with a medication. But you see, if that's the case, there'd be a pattern of birth defects. And when birth defects are all over the place, then you become a little bit more skeptical that it's the drug that's doing it. So just to be clear, as far as we know right now, second-generation antipsychotic use doesn't seem to cause any known anomalies. But a quick word about Seroquel or Quetiapine. Seroquel, or quitapine, has been a popular medication for pregnant women who require antipsychotic medication. And this is because there's a lot of safety data on it, and it seems to be okay. In 2007, Newport et al. in the American Journal of Psychiatry documented that placental passage of quitapine seemed to be the lowest of all the second-generation antipsychotics. And talking about antipsychotic meds, haloperidol has been around for a long time and there's a lot of safety data regarding that even in pregnancy. There does not seem to be any adverse sequelae linked with this medication in gestation, so haloperidol is also good to go. And as we get ready to end the podcast, a quick word about risperidone as an antipsychotic. Even though the majority of the safety data seems to be okay, there was one publication that showed an increased risk of cardiac malformations, but it hasn't been shown in other studies. So nonetheless, even though there's this conflicting data on risperidone, because we have so many other choices to use, it's best to stay away from that during pregnancy, specifically in the periconception period or in the first trimester, and use something else. Otherwise, it's fine to keep the patient on it because the data is conflicting. Just to show this conflicting data on risperidone, a study that used the U.S. Medicaid data from 2000 to 2010 that showed a small increased risk of cardiovascular malformations with risperidone showed that the relative risk was 1.26, but the confidence interval crossed 1. It was 0.88 to 1.81. And so it's kind of unclear there because that confidence interval again crossed 1, and not all other data has shown shown this link with cardiovascular malformations. For more information on that data, you can go to JAMA Psychiatry, published in 2016, with the first author being Hybrext. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered bipolar disorder in pregnancy and walked down the different treatment arms from the gold standard of lithium to second-generation antipsychotic medications to antiepileptic medications and the preferred medication, which is Lamictal. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.